This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. Today our guest is the one and only Robert Fripp. Robert, did you practice today? Uh, I have not yet strapped on a guitar today, Bob. But may I also say you have a second guest, David Singleton, who is my business business partner, (laughs) King Crimson producer, and we've been engaged in various forms of musical and professional activities since about 1989. I say this because David has a far greater intelligence than mine and is also a philosophy graduate from Cambridge University, one of the two prestige universities in England, whereas I am from working class stock and had a grammar school education and has really been educated by the life of a professional musician. Okay, since you mentioned, David, you're both on the uh, call here today. The two of you are going on tour imminently on the West Coast of California. Can you tell me about that, why David's involved and what you're going to do? Well, David's involved because he has a superior intellect to mine. He also has a far greater overview of my affairs than I do because I tend to be more specifically focused in the moment with what I'm doing. For example, a working musician walks on stage, plugs in, and begins to play. And their focus tends to be very specifically located in that moment during the performance. Now, when I walk off stage, my recall tends to be better if the gig has been really bad. If the gig sucks, you remember more of it. If it takes off and flies away, you're in a different place. And when you land on Earth, you don't quite have access to that same place 
until you take off and fly again. However, David, who may be, for example, watching from the auditorium, has a better distance and overview of what has gone on and also a far better skill set in terms of analysis than I do. So his opinion is infinitely more reliable than mine. So he's coming along. When I stumble, he will tell people what I meant to say had I been a younger, more intelligent man. Our talks grew out of uh, talks that we used to give before the King Crimson shows. So before the King Crimson shows, we used to do a thing called the Royal Package where some fans could get, come in early. And I recall when we were originally planning what we might do before the shows, I said, well, somebody should talk to the fans, you know, for the hour before the show. And I remember distinctly Robert saying to me, David, you should talk to the fans. I love it when you do the work and I earn the money. <laughs> Which wasn't true, by the way, because he shares the money. But anyway, um, so I, I began talking to fans before Robert joined me, one of the band members joined me. And so to some extent, we're now doing those talks without the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Robert, you're a man who has very distinct opinions. So it's funny that you talk about trusting Dave. Is Dave unique or you're more trusting than your image? Um, David is one of two people uh, who I trusted to give me objective and accurate feedback on anything that was particularly arising in my life or shall we say, in King Crimson Affairs, Bill Rieflin and David Singleton were the two characters who, if anyone in the band felt that Robert needed to be told a particular something, but maybe they were afraid to tell him, then they would go to either Bill Rieflin, who was our drummer and keyboard player in the 2014-2018 incarnations, they would go to Bill Rieflin or to David Singleton, both of whom I trust to be entirely impartial and give me the good, bad news or whatever it might have been. There are very few people, very, very few people who are like this. Okay, but you seem so warm and friendly right now. Is this your normal demeanor because your reputation is not that? Uh, it's true. My reputation is appalling. And it's interesting uh, as an older man to look back and consider why, why this might be. And I'm beginning to come up with a few, a few clues as to my, why my reputation is appalling. But since I trust David, David, why do you think my reputation is appalling? Um. Well, I'll answer that in two ways. Firstly, the very first time Robert and I went out doing a speaking tour, it had a subtitle, That Awful Man and His Manager, <laughs> which we didn't, which wasn't a tagline that we added. Somebody else, some wit came up with it when we were about to go on tour and said, oh, this is what you should call it, That Awful Man and His Manager. And uh, the main reason I think Robert has that rep reputation is because he prioritizes the music in all situations. So, so if you have a show or you're recording, or people, Robert prioritizes the music, not the social or, and, and for some people, I think that probably irks them. Okay. But Robert, let's say in this hypothetical, 
you walk into a coffee shop, are you the warmest guy or do you say, hey, this is exactly what I want and you're happy if it's not perfect? Would someone encounter this so-called appalling reputation if you were just in everyday life? Probably. <laughs> I find that if you'd like a, a by and large overview, if someone comes to me with a flea in their ear, they tend to leave with two, a flea in each ear. If someone comes to me with an attitude, they tend to leave with more of the same attitude. For example, if they come up to me with an open heart, they tend to find a person with an open heart. There are exceptions to this, and I can recall a few of them. For example, if I go into a coffee shop and I'm reading, for someone to come up and say, excuse me, Mr. Fripp, I didn't want to interrupt you, my response might be to actually quote Jimi Hendrix in the same situation, then why are you? So if a person comes up knowing they're interrupting me, I might remind them that they know better. Or on some cases, I've simply ignored them. Okay. You're in your home right now. I don't want the specific address, but where is it generally? It's in Middle England. It's about 30 miles south of Birmingham. It's uh, geographically Middle England. It's in the county of Worcester. And it's what is called a Georgian market town that most of the buildings on the High Street, Bridge Street, and where we are, right in the center of town, to the market square, it's Georgian. That is approximately mid-18th century. However, David who lives in the old vicarage in town, looks out his window and sees the abbey. I look out our front windows and see the abbey about 200 yards away as the crow flies. So we're looking at the site of Christian worship uh, in this town since about 700 AD. Now, to an American, this is maybe kind of astonishing since the colonies were only set up, as we know, in the early 17th century, uh, to have an ongoing site of worship in any religion for a period of, what, 1,300 years, 1,320 years, is quite astonishing. Uh, at the end of our garden, I live here with my wonderful wife, Toya. We walk down to the garden. At the end of the garden is the River Avon. You turn left and go up 20 miles, you'll pass William Shakespeare's old cottage, old house. If you turn right and go down about 100 miles, you will pass Sting's house just outside Salisbury. So at the River Avon here, the Vikings used to come up river and beat people up in our town. And beastly characters that they were, they would burn down the wooden Christian church in town. So eventually it was rebuilt in, I think, early 20th century of stone. And a local worthy tough guy, the alpha male of the time, the local worthy knight, saw the Vikings off in a big punch-up up the hill here, 
he saw them off for, I think, about 1075, and they never came back. So we've had relative peace in town for about mm, a thousand years. So, David, would you add to this? What am I missing? No, I thought that was wonderful. I was going to say, when you said relative peace in town, that's obviously until Robert moved in. But <laughs> <laughs> So, Robert, why this general location in England? All right. When, when I first met my wife in 1983, but we met again in 1985, working on a charity record for, uh, to raise money for a children's school in West Virginia associated with the charity of which I was at that time uh, the president, I met my wife and proposed in a week. We had a date on the Friday. She went back to London returned for our second date, Friday, one week later, and I proposed. At that time, my little elderly mother was alive, so my wife moved to my part of the world because we knew that maybe not too far down the road, one day the phone would go and the voice would say, you need to come now. Well, after my wonderful little mother died in 1993, we could then be anywhere. And in 1999, my wife's parents retired. She bought them a cottage uh, just uh, half a mile upriver uh, where there was a boat club that Toya essentially for throughout her youth, about age, I think two or three onwards, my wife became associated with this specific location. She moved her parents into retirement to this location. And at that point, it became obvious that we should change from Wiltshire, Wiltshire, Dorset, up to Worcestershire here to be near them. So that's why we're here. Why did you know or how did you know she was the one so quickly? How could you not know that you've just met your wife? How old were you when you met your wife? Uh, 39 was when we had our first date and I proposed. Okay. There are all these rock stars who do drugs, sleep with a lot of women, but not all of them. Ian Anderson told me, you know, that he was living a more conventional life while the members of his man were partying. You'd already had a lot of success, notoriety, been on the road. Had you partaken so-called of the fruits of the road, or were you in your hotel room practicing? What was your life like before you met Toya? Uh, well, I never took drugs. Uh, yes, I practiced in my hotel room for hours and hours and hours. Did I socialize from time to time? Yes. But in 1969, Peter Simfield, the lyricist for the first King Crimson, who wrote some astonishing words, he commented that Robert practiced in his hotel room for eight hours a day. Now, from my position today, looking at Peter and looking at Robert and asked to take a decision on these two young men's future, I would be inclined to say that guitarist is likely to succeed. And in terms of being a nasty, horrible, creepy person, uh, to come back to what David said, and since we're talking about 1969 King Crimson, 
Michael Giles, the drummer, astonishing drummer, probably the the drummer of his generation in rock music. He said there were three three areas for a band: the music, the money, and the social life. Any two of those, you will have a successful band. And I would say any three of those, and you have an astonishingly successful band. But going back to it, my priority working as a professional musician is the music. There are some professionals who take an alternative style, an alternative view, and that's entirely legitimate, which is this is a lifestyle that I would like. The socializing with the other members of the band, the life on the road, and so on. If that's congenial for them, fine. That is not my primary concern, and a life on the road has been distinctly non-congenial for, for me as a person. In terms of the money, my attitude has been, this is coming from uh, the background of the 1960s, and King Crimson began essentially as a cooperative venture, share the money. And after the dissolution of the first King Crimson and the subsequent incarnations, then I've kept to this. If you ask a person in the band to make the commitment that you are making, you share the money with them. And if you don't share the money with them, you can't legitimately ask them to make the commitment that you are. So for me, I've worked with musicians that personally were exceptionally difficult for me to work with. If I felt that these were the musicians needed to make this music available. So in other words, the social aspects of working uh, within a group have not been a priority for me personally. The money, neither particularly. It comes down to the music. Yeah. So you mentioned not taking drugs. Is that a philosophy? Did you just stumble into that and you didn't take drugs? Tell me more about that. It was always very clear to me that this was not a way for me. Just that clear. And what about alcohol? Yes, I pushed the boat out. Uh, a young man of my generation that didn't take drugs, and we're now looking at the early 1960s, uh, what he might do, however, is have a pint of cider on a Saturday night, even two. Uh, and it would be rough cider. And why rough cider? Because it was one shilling and one pence. And on a Saturday night, if you're only getting five shillings a week for your earnings, or even five pounds a week for your earnings, that was all you could afford. So age 16 or 17, I would go down to the cellar club in Poole to see the rock groups playing in the cellar club. Greg Lake uh, and his band was one of them. And for two shillings and two pence and the price of a bus ride there, which is about a shilling, you could have a, a relatively straightforward and joyful Saturday night out. It was affordable. Did I grow older and develop uh, a taste in something finer than rough cider? Yes, I quite like sparkling wine. Champagne is fine, but I'm not 
snobbish about it. I'm very happy to have Prosecco. And I have learned to drink margaritas. My wife makes astonishing monster margaritas. So I, I have also enjoyed monster margaritas on many occasions with Adrian Ballou. Uh, we would go out to some modest Mexican restaurants and have the monster margaritas. But I do not drink when I'm working. So other than your wife, where's the best margarita you've had? <laughs> now you have me. I tell you what, I had a really good margarita at Daryl's house in October of 2022. We did our live at Daryl's house. And then afterwards, I wasn't anticipating drinking, but it did feel like an appropriate moment. So I had a margarita and it was very, very good. And, you know, traditionally margaritas come with salt on the rim. Are you a traditionalist eh, or do you say no salt? Classic. Salt. Margarita on the rocks. Preferably crushed ice. No doubt. Fresh lime. Fresh lime. And does it matter whether it's Cuervo 1800 or just whatever tequila's on hand? Uh, I'm not snobbish. I prefer white tequila. A blue agave goes down very nicely indeed. But now here's a one. I was in Mexico in Cuernavaca with my pal Leo, who organized guitar craft and guitar circle courses at Tepotsman. And we were in the restaurant, which was formerly the house of Diego Rivera. And we were having lunch together and I thought, well, I'm not working. I'll push out the boat. I'll have a margarita. And Leah explained to me, you don't get margaritas in Mexico any more than you, you used to get pizzas in Italy. He said, we drink mezcal. I thought, all right, I'll give this a shot. And I took my first sip and I thought, oh, that tastes nice. I'll have a second one. Once I got to the end of my first mezcal, I realized, no, no, a second one is really a step too far. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. 
pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Okay, what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you a member of the group? Were you into sports? Were you that odd kid who was always by themselves? Probably all of those. Uh, I think it changed when I was about age nine or ten. And my reading skills had developed. And at that point... I would tend to stay in more evenings than not uh, reading. When I became a guitarist at age 11, this was a very good natural and developing tendency because if you are a musician, an aspirant musician, and or a composer or writer, you have to have what Professor John Sloboda in his Psychology for Musicians refers to as the capacity of strong introspection. If you are a serious practicer, this is four to eight hours of your life at least. And if you're a young concert pianist, it might be 12, 16 hours a day. Now, to sit on a chair, mostly on your own, focusing on your practicing or your writing, that much time on your own for most inverted commas ordinary people would be a struggle. If, however, you have an innate or developed capacity for introspection, which is healthy, this is what Professor Sloboda refers to. This is a strong and healthy capacity for introspection, not, uh, not somehow a failing to engage socially. Okay. Is it like your wife, as soon as you started playing the guitar, you said, this is it? How did you make the transition from a non-player to a player? When I met my wife, I practiced less than hitherto. Okay, let me rephrase this question. <laughs> How did you first get an instrument? And was guitar your first instrument? Yes, it was December the 24th, 1957, uh, Christmas Eve. And my mother had bought me all my Christmas presents. But I believe the day before, I said I want a guitar for Christmas. So my mother and I uh, went out shopping uh, into Bournemouth, which was nine miles from Wimborne, where we lived. Uh, and this area in Dorset, based around actually just 
four miles north of Wimborne, is the Fripp family village where the, the Fripps have gone back father to father for 400 years. For example, in the village where uh, Toya and myself had our first date and where we got married, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Robert Fripp died in 1754. But my father took the genealogy back a little further, actually to 1590 in Edmundsham, which is five miles north of that. So that's a slight distraction. Now back, uh, we went from Wimborne into Bournemouth. We went round all the music shops in Bournemouth, finding nothing appropriate until right about five o'clock at the end of our shopping day to Min's Music of Westbourne. And as we were there in the shop, a woman came in with this guitar and she said, I would like to return this to you. We're getting a better guitar for my son. So we stepped forward and said, we will buy this. And the Eggman Frears instrument bought for six guineas is now in the cellar directly below the study where we're speaking. It was an appalling instrument, a really, really terrible instrument, which crippled my left hand action for years. Even in 1970, I remember having to practice to develop a more relaxed left hand grip after learning to play this instrument. You'd need pliers to put the strings down above the seventh fret. The action was so bad. But anyway, that was my first guitar. And was in three months, I knew this was my life. Okay, you take the guitar home. What do you do? First of all, there's the issue of tuning it. You don't know how to read music. What were your steps? All right, well, the, the man in Min's music obviously knew three or four chords to persuade people that this was an instrument worth playing, and he tuned it up for us. So I took it home, and there was the guitar tutor of the day. It was actually an appalling tutor, a hugely successful called Play in a Day by Bert Whedon, which many of the leading guitarists of the time look back on and refer to it as the first tutor. It was an appalling tutor. Nevertheless, this was where one began at the time until we received better information. So about three months after having the guitar, I went for my first guitar lessons with Mrs. Kathleen Gartell of the Corf Mullen School of Music. Corf Mullen being three miles down the road from Wimborne and where I grew up spending the first three years of my life in Corf Mullen. Mrs. Gartell was a very good Salvation Army lady who saw it as her work in life as educating children in music. She was primarily a piano teacher, not an awfully good guitar teacher, which she knew. And after my first course of, I believe, 10 or 12 lessons, uh, I was her star student. So she sent me on to a proper guitar teacher, Don Strike of Westbourne Arcade, who was actually only 200 yards 
from Min's Music, where I bought the guitar, but had not quite discovered him. I wish I'd discovered him earlier. And under Don Strike, I began to develop seriously uh, and find my own way forward. When I was 17, I visited Don Strike's music shop on that particular Saturday afternoon. This is what young guitarists would do. There were two shops in town. You go to Don Strike's in Westbourne Arcade, and then maybe you go to Eddie Moore's music in uh, not Westbourne. It was it was before Christchurch. Anyway, it was it was East Bournemouth, and in between two shops there would be movement. I went in one Saturday, and Don Strike shook my hand and acknowledged me as the better guitarist. At the time. It didn't strike me particularly, but as I've got older and from where I am now, I reckon I recognize this as a very generous compliment from an older generation player acknowledging a younger generation player. Okay, when you take lessons, they teach you how to read music. Do you read music today? Do you write out charts? Um, do I read music today? Yes, but slowly because it's not part of my daily activity. Uh, historically, uh, when I became a professional in 1967 and moved to London, way up until about 2008, I would... I would write, as we might say, compose with charts, uh, but within members of King Crimson, I would not give them charts. Um, I understand Charles Mingus didn't either. So what I would do is show the music to the other members of the band and invite their responses in return. But yes, the quick answer is, Bob, I read music and wrote music in the football that period of 40-odd years in my professional life. Okay, paint the picture of what it's like in the 50s growing up. I'm a little younger than you. I'm growing up in the United States. We always hear about a war hangover, sort of uh, life being in black and white. Was that what it's like, or is that an inaccurate description? Um, the, quick, the quick answer is that's, that's accurate. Uh, to paint a broader picture, I was born in 1946. Uh, my grandfather was in the Marines and in Gallipoli. My uncle Bill was in the Air Force and was shot down in October 1939 and spent the next five years and seven months in uh, 12 German prisoner of war uh, camps, uh, including Stalaglov III, where he was uh, one of the logistics people planning the Great Escape. He was a navigator. His pilot was one of those who escaped and was caught and shot. So Uncle Bill refused to speak about his war years for 50 years. And then 50 years later, he would begin to respond. 
Uncle Bill was um, a close presence in my life growing up. And that was, that was a, a real time for me, one, one generation removed. But growing up in England, it was the time of austerity. Uh, for example, in, when I was three in 1949, sweet rationing was, was abandoned for three months. And then it was reinstituted. And I remember on a Saturday when we go to the cinema with my father, my sister and myself, we would stop off and buy a shilling's worth of sweets on the way to the cinema, but it would be ration-based. And I remember the first time rationing uh, came off in 1949. I was three and running around in the attic of our home in Corfmullen. And I ran over the open trap door and fell down from the attic with a big crump on the landing below. And I was in bed when my sister went to have her ration-free sweets for the first time. So, yeah, growing up in the 50s, um, not that at that age I was aware of any constrictions. It was the life we had. But after the event, I could look back and say austerity and my parents' working-class lives continued and to some extent today continues on. Uh, my mother uh, was the daughter of a Welsh miner who died one long night at his age of 59. I believe it was, I believe it was 1948 or 9 he died. One long night, wheezing his life away from his punctured lungs. He had a wooden leg because working down the mine at the Six Bells Colliery, he'd got trapped on the pulley taking coal into the crusher, and one of his legs went into the coal crusher, and one of his mining pals pulled him off. And my grandmother, Gladys Louise Green, uh, her hair turned white in a week, not knowing whether her husband would live or die. My, my father, at age 16, was told to leave school because he needed to help bring money into the family to help support his five brothers and sisters. So that's my background. I was brought up with complete confidence that I would succeed. Why? Because both my sister and myself knew that we would succeed because we would work. We would work until we would succeed. In other words, this is a classic Protestant work ethic inculcated into us by our parents who had done the same. We were brought up to be independent and to work. So when I went to London uh, in September 1967, I knew I would succeed because I would work. However, I did not anticipate that my professional success would be a public success. I thought it more likely that I would, for example, end up in sessions. It never occurred to me that I would 
personally become well-known. Okay. In the U.S., we had the folk boom of the early 60s, and a lot of people got nylon string guitars. And then the Beatles hit in the beginning of 64, and seemingly everybody got an electric guitar. Why was everybody picking up the guitar in England in 1957? Because it's not only you, there are a lot of other legendary players. What was going on? Was the guitar hip? It's like, why did you want to play the guitar? Were other people playing the guitar or what you heard on the radio? What was the motivation? All right. You're explaining, you're asking me to explain the zeitgeist. I can't quite do that. Why music would reach over and express itself through popular culture in such a way that it brought a generation together with the conviction that music will change the world. The cultural context would be in the mid-1950s. There is a movement in England called Skiffle. One of the pivotal characters, very important character, was Chris Barber. And you would have a skiffle group, which was probably derived from Woody Guthrie and other American folk heroes through an English perspective. But you would have a tea chest and a broom pole and a piece of string. That would be your base. You would have a scrubbing board for rhythm played with um, thumb. Um, what is it, David? Thumbnails from sewing. Yes. Finger. Finger protectors from sewing, yes. and you would have perhaps Thimble. two or three guitarists. Thim Thimbles, Thimble. thank you. Thimbles. Uh, and that was the basic. Then Lonnie Donegan was a character who also came out of this, this same background. Very popular. And then it became more sophisticated as Bob Dylan became uh, more familiar in England. And then it moved on to electricity. Electricity for me, 1957, 56, 57, Elvis, I mean, Scotty Moore, what a player. He was the first guitarist who made me think, yeah. Chuck Berry, yeah. But we shouldn't forget uh, Muddy Waters in Chicago plugging in a bank 1947-48, which was the precursor to all of this. Would you go back much further than that? I'm sure you could, but really I think the beginning of it will probably be 47, 48, where Muddy rocks out in Chicago. Then move forward to the Beatles, who are also looking primarily in American direction when they begin. But something else was going on with the Beatles. For me, the last example of communal genius in popular music, something astonishing. And when I heard A Day in the Life in 1966, 67, 67, hmm. that reoriented, reoriented the direction of my life. Instead of going on, on to university and taking a degree in estate management, to become a partner in my father's uh, auctioneering and estate agency firm in Wimborne, Dorset. 
I had to go to music. Why? In the same way that I recognized my wife. At these pivotal moments in our life, we recognize this is for me. It has to be. And if we can't recognize it, then something's off. Why can't we recognize what is obvious? Well, fortunately, I think my instincts were good. Okay. You're in the UK. The Beatles hit in the UK in 62. Needless to say, they're playing in the late 50s. Do you feel a burgeoning rock and roll scene? Uh, you know, Liverpool was revered in the US, but it's not a super classy, looked upon fondly city in the UK. To what degree did you feel a burgeoning scene, or did you just turn on the radio one day and heard Love Me Do? Well, I remember hearing Love Me Do uh, on the radio about 62, 3, and it didn't, it didn't quite do it for me. It, for me, it wasn't the strongest song. I was in what were called beat groups at the time. Well, a, little bit, a little bit slower, a little bit slower. You get a guitar. You're going for lessons. At what point do you decide to join a band and play out, and how does that happen? 14 stroke 15, and why? Because my guitar teacher, Don Strike, said, you're at the point where you need to be in a band. You need to work with other musicians. So age 14 turning 15, I was in my first beat group uh, called The Ravens. And Gordon Haskell uh, was another, another one of those players. I remember on the grammar school playing field while we were throwing discus, he turned to me and said, hey, Mush, if I buy a bass, can I join your band? And I said, yes. So that was our first band. And then that stopped because I was taking my school examinations, which were then called O-levels. And then at age 17, beginning 18, I was in my second beat group, also with Gordon Haskell, called the League of Gentlemen. And that was a more mature expression. We would do covers. For example, we would do Beatles covers, Four Seasons covers. We would do uh, guitar instrumentals of the day, like Orange Blossom Special, for example, because I was quite a developed guitarist for my age. Uh, we could take on guitar, guitar pieces that not many semi-pro bands could do. That went on until I was about 18, 19. And at that point, I needed to take A-levels to go on to university so I could become a partner in my father's firm. And I paid my way through college by being a guitarist in the Majestic Hotel, Jewish Hotel on Bournemouth's East Coast, where a young guitarist called Andy Summers went on to London with Zoot Money's big roll band that became the psychedelic Dantalian's chariot before Andy went off to the West Coast uh, with Eric, Eric Burden in the Animals. So Andy went off to, to London and I took over the guitar chair for the next two and a half, three years until I went to London and moved to ignominy and failure for a couple of years. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents 
a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. So, you were going to university. Did you finish university? I didn't even begin. I went up to university and took my interview. I took my A-levels, the next, the next standard in school examinations, uh, at two weeks' notice and uh, had an A in economics, B in economic history, which was sufficiently good to get me accepted. I even had my digs booked. And then I heard A Day in the Life and Hendrix, Foxy Lady, Purple Haze, Eric Clapton with the Blues Breakers, the Bartok String Quartets, Stravinsky, Rite of Spring. And I could no longer be the dutiful son. I was being redirected in life. And I went with it. Okay, so you decide to go to London. Do you know somebody in London? Where are you going to stay? Do you have any work opportunities? The quick answer to all of those questions is no. However, in Bournemouth, there were the Giles brothers, Michael and Peter Giles, and they had just uh, left a band called Trendsetters Limited. They were professionals. Peter was two years older than me. Michael was four years older than me. And when you're 21, that's very big. Uh, I became a professional musician on May the 16th, 1967, my 21st birthday, and then became available for work. And Michael and Peter Giles were advertising for a singing organist. I was tipped off to this by a local agent in Bournemouth. So I went and auditioned, and although I can't sing and don't play organ, uh, 
I spent a month rehearsing with them. And after a month, I said to Michael Giles, uh, and I thought humorously, I said, have I passed the audition? Well, I mean, the answer to that is clearly yes, but not if you're asking Michael Giles, because Michael's key characteristic is that Michael could never commit himself. So Michael rolled himself a cigarette and looked down and put the cigarette in his mouth and lit it and said, let's not be in too great a hurry to commit ourselves to each other. So although I never learnt whether I passed the audition or not, we moved to London in September. September? I think we might have moved a month or two earlier because I had got us a job working in La Dolce Notte Italian restaurant with Douglas Ward, a Cordovox accordion player, backing uh, an Italian singer called Moreno. But we're now shooting off on in entirely tangential situations. But yes, I moved to London with two people who had more experience than me, and we moved up to essentially unemployment and ignominy for a year or two. Uh, we did have employment. We began, I believe, on the Monday, and on the Thursday, uh, we discovered that the agent was ripping off £10 a week from our pay packet, and we went on strike on the Friday in protest, and we were sacked on the Saturday. And I was unemployed for the next year or so. Okay, but one can, because this is something we're not familiar with in the U.S., but one can live on the dole on unemployment and exist for that year? Uh, yes, is the quick answer. I lived on what was called supplementary benefit, which meant on a Friday I would drive with uh, Peter Giles in his 1952 Daimler. It was a heap, but nevertheless it would take us as far as the supplementary benefits office at Downshire Hill in Hampstead, where we would get, I believe it was five pounds, which would eke out a fairly modest, not to say miserable existence. So on a Monday, I had the choice of whether to buy an extra can of peas or half an ounce of golden Virginia rolling tobacco or old Holborn rolling tobacco or go up to Kilburn State Cinema, where I could see a film. So this was my choice on a Monday evening. Can of peas and eat more. Golden Holborn, roll some more cigarettes, or two, or three, see a film. That was my life for about a year. So then what happened after that year? After that, uh, Ian MacDonald came together with Giles, Giles and Fripp. One of the Giles fell out and another person called Greg Lake came in. And Ian MacDonald had an uncle called Angus Hunking, who was a retired, very successful industrialist from the north of England, very good man, who, to keep his second wife happy, uh, he invested £7,000 in his wife's nephew in McDonald's band, which enabled us to stay afloat for a period of time and to buy equipment. 
which is what we did. And this was the beginning of King Crimson. Okay. During the year that you're on the dole, what is your musical situation? Is that when this band is forming or are you playing other bands? What's going on during that year? Um, during that year, I practiced two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve hours a day. Why? Because a successful professional musician doesn't have the time to practice. May I say that I have been mostly an exception to that, but that's another story. Uh, during the time Giles, Giles and Fritt were living in Ignominy from the late 67 into 1968, we made demos in our modest accommodations at 93A Grondesby Road, Kilburn, and we secured a record deal with DRAM, that's a branch of Decca Records. And the person we spoke to at Decca Records is a famous character who turned down the Beatles, Dick Rowe. That was the man we met at DRAM. He's also the A&R man that persuaded Lita Rosa to record how much is that doggy in the window, which she hated and was bullied and pushed into doing it. Uh, and only ever sung it once. The one take of How Much of That Doggy in the Window, which was a massive hit for her, that she refused ever to sing live. Now, in case you think I'm just wittering on, Bob, Lita Rosa was a cabaret turn at the Majestic Hotel, and at age 19, I accompanied her. Wow. So... What do we, we recognize life is a circle. We cannot escape our circle. Anyway, coming back. So the one year of Giles, Giles and Fred Poverty and Igamony was essentially getting a record deal and making a record, which in its first year of relief worldwide attracted, I believe, 400 sales. Okay, a raging success. So how does that evolve into King Crimson? That's an interesting one. Uh, probably Giles, Giles and Fripp's only public, I'm not sure, is a success. But meanwhile, Ian MacDonald had joined Giles, Giles and Fripp. I'll cut straight in. So Giles, Giles and Fripp was now a four-piece. We, through a, a professional connection that the Giles brothers had, we did a 30-minute television show called Colour Me Pop on BBC Two television in England, which was broadcast, I believe, in November 1968. We, Giles Sonsfrit, kind of broke up on the, on the same day or night of release. It was fairly obvious to me that Giles Sonsfrit and Ian MacDonald had no chance whatsoever of professional success. So I put it to the other members of the band, look, uh, I don't feel I can continue working with Peter, but I have a pal in Bournemouth who sings, plays guitar, and plays bass, Greg Lake, and he can replace either myself or Peter, whatever you feel. And Ian MacDonald and Michael Giles, figured that, no, it was probably better moving forward that I stay and Peter leave, which is what happened. And Greg Lake moved from Bournemouth to London and had nowhere to live 
And for the first three days of Greg being in London, he slept in bed with me, my four foot six modest bed in our modest accommodations before we got an apartment or pad, as it would be called back then. We got a pad together uh, off off um, Westbourne Grove. How did you know Greg Lake and what was his status and how much hunger did he have before you picked him from obscurity? Well, Greg was at that time probably more successful than, than we were. But to go back, um, Greg was one of the young players on the Bournemouth pool music scene, as I was. He was a couple of years younger than me. And I've mentioned the cellar club earlier. Well, I would climb over the wall of the cellar club and get in, which I did. And I was at uh, a Greg Lakes band. Trying to, um, the name currently escapes me because I'm talking too much, but I saw them doing an audition. Uh, we were young characters, the same age, young teenage boys with guitars and music. We became very, very close, as young young characters do. Uh, I went to London. I stayed in touch with Greg. Greg joined a band called The Gods, who had Ken Hensley, who went on to Uriah Heep. Uh, and we stayed in touch, good pals. And when Peter was leaving, I was in touch with Greg and said, would you like to come to London? It was fairly obvious that Greg was a lifer in music. You know, you recognize each other. We're, we're not here uh, as a lifestyle. We're here because this is what we do. And it was fairly obvious to anyone in Bournemouth at the time that Greg was one of those characters who would succeed. Okay, how do you get a manager and a record deal for King Crimson? Uh, through the connection with DRAM, they knew Noel Gay. Noel Gay's background was in publishing, but they also had management. Uh, since Giles, Giles and Fripp were a new artist on the D DRAM label, we, we needed management. So they were in touch with Noel Gay, who took on Giles, Giles and Fripp. And two young characters working at Noel Gay were David Entoven and John Gayden, who were just about to go independent. So... This was E.G. Management, who split off from Noel Gay and took King Crimson, Giles, Giles and Fripp, becoming King Crimson with them, which uh, became a, a legal issue because Noel Gay, when King Crimson suddenly had this remarkably successful first album, Noel Gay said, but hey, Noel Gay manages King Crimson, not E.G. Management. So a settlement was made by which he, Noel Gay received, I think, 2% on in the court of Crimson King for a year or two. So you had Enthoven and Gaydon, a new generation management firm, managing King Crimson, who were therefore available for a new record deal. I was going to say, and I think if I remember rightly, they became excited because they saw the TV show that you mentioned earlier. I believe so. Yes, because they weren't aware really of 
what Charles, Charles and Fripp were doing, and they saw that TV show. So that the main thing that served was that those two saw it and then decided they wanted to manage you. Yes. Well, on January the 13th, 1969, um, King Crimson, who then didn't quite have a name, uh, nevertheless began, began rehearsing in the basement of the Fulham Palace Cafe in Fulham, Fulham Palace Road. Why? Because we had taken of the £7,000, which Angus Hunking had generously lent us. It wasn't a gift. It was a loan that he never, ever believed in his wildest dreams we would repay. But nevertheless, if it kept his wife happy, then he'd do it. So armed with our new equipment and money to pay rent on our rehearsal room, we began rehearsing. And what we would do is invite people down to see us. And of the two of the first people to come down to see us after, I believe, 10 days rehearsal were Enthoven and Gaiden. And they thought, yeah, this is, this is good. And they went away and they came back. And the second time they came back, they realized this isn't a good band. This is something else. And we established the convention of inviting people down to see us. For example, the Moody Blues came down to see us. And we played for them and Tony Clark, their record producer. Uh, and then with various record companies taking an interest, Chris Blackwell of Island Records sent down Muff Winwood to see us. And Muff Winwood was the brother of Steve Winwood, who I believe we probably know well. And Muff Winwood was utterly unable to see what was in front of him. And he remarked to Wentoven and Gaiden, they're like the Tremolos, who were an excellent band, but very unlike King Crimson. And he said to us, um, you have no image. You won't be able to work live unless you have a hit single. So we went back to Chris Blackwell and said, what I've just said. And Chris Blackwell, I wasn't in the room, but I think the response that I've received is something like, you said what? And for me, I have all take, always taken after that, Muff Winwood is a reliable direction to the way to move in life. So if Muff points that way, I go that way. He established a standard for me. So anyway, other characters would come down and essentially on the basis of those performances in a very small basement of a Fulham Palace cafe, uh, that established our, our beginning. From this, the connections were made. We did a week in Changes, a club in Newcastle that just opened about February of 1969, which had been booked on the basis of Giles, Giles and Fripp, Callum Pop Show. But the first King Crimson live performance was in April 1969 at the Speakeasy Club, which was something of a defining performance. But how do you ultimately get a record deal and make that record? Different Record companies made different offers. 
Uh, Mercury Records, I believe, offered £350,000 at the time, which was huge. Uh, Island Records in England, because Entoven and Gaiden and the band felt this was the right, the right label, young generation label for us. Uh, and in America, Atlantic Records, Armit Ertigan, Armit Ertigan flew to London, I believe, it may have been the second or third speakeasy performance. He flew to England to see the band and make a personal connection to get us for Atlantic, respect Mr. Ertigan, which he did. So we had the record, the record deal, Island Records in England, Atlantic in America, and we made the record in seven days and one for final mixing. Uh, I'd have to check the timeline, but that was probably around July, August. We had a week in Morgan Studios, which didn't work at all, with Tony Clark, the Moody Blues producer. He, he didn't see or hear us quite. So the band make, made a choice in principle that we would rather make our own mistakes and produce ourselves than have a successful, well-known, established producer who couldn't quite see what we were. So those, those tapes were abandoned, and then we moved into Wessex Studios in North London, near Islington, where we made In the Court of the Crimson King very quickly. Right. Well, very quickly, it, it, it's interesting because it actually happened the other way around. They made the record first because, in fact, David Entoven funded the record, if I'm right, Robert. Yes, he did. So, That's so, right. so, so that rather than getting the record deal and then them paying for the record, the management actually paid for the record and then licensed the record to the various record labels. Yes, David Entoven took out a mortgage on his Muse property, 22 Petersham Place, I believe, in order to get, in order to get the funds, so I tell you this is this is a long story. But what I'm going to do, Bob, is leave you talking to David while I take a quick bathroom break, and I'll be right back. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury, with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Well, let me ask you this. I was going to ask Kim. I mean, at first with the Tony Clark, usually when a label makes a record, it's very hard to convince him to throw that project away. But I guess since the managers were selling the record, they didn't really, you know, they needed to get it right. So, yes, the, uh, as I said, the record, fortunately, in fact, was funded by the, by the management, not by the record label. When Tony Clark produced it, they thought they were going to put it out on the Moody Blues label. They just started a label, and the Moody Blues were thinking of putting out the record as produced by Tony Clark. They went into Morgan Studios with Tony Clark, and um, there was at least a week of that. They recorded most of the same pieces, uh, and then the band decided this wasn't going anywhere. We've actually released, fortunately, because the management paid for them, we've subsequently released those recordings. They they were owned by King Crimson. But um, I have the diaries of David Entoven, and it was a huge shock because they were funding this record. (laughs) I think these were were people with astonishing belief in the band they had because literally, you know, the band came along and said, we want to throw away this recording that we just made with this very reputable producer because we don't like it and we'd like to do it again. And David had to go and then mortgage his house in order to throw away those recordings and say, okay, we're going to do it again. And even work, well, maybe worse from his point of view on the band said, and we're now going to produce ourselves because we don't think anybody can produce it properly. Uh, Astonishing faith he showed. And therefore, and they went back into the studio producing themselves and that that's the record that everybody now knows. So with hindsight, do you believe the Tony Clark record would have been successful? It wouldn't have been King Crimson. So if you listen to it, it doesn't sound, uh, it doesn't really sound like King Crimson. It sounds like some strange morphing of King Crimson and the Moody Blues. It's, it's, it's much softer around the edges, much more. uh, So, I don't think it, it might have been successful. It wouldn't have been the astonishing success that the, the final record was. In other words, it wouldn't have been iconic. It wouldn't have been iconic and hugely different in the same way that the, in the Court of the Crimson King is. It would have been much more of a, something that was, was perfectly pleasant, but I don't think it would have changed the world in the same way. Uh, except the, the, uh, Robert always records it was the piece I talked to the wind. I think he was made to sit there and play that guitar part about 20 times. And oddly enough, 
I'd done an interview with Robert and he had told me the story. I didn't, I'm not sure if I believe it, but was, no, we were there all night, David. And I was going on and on and on. And he was saying, play it again, play it again. I don't like it. Yes, play it again, play it again. And he said, and we began to get more and more fractious and we were more and more rude back down the talk back to this uh, producer. And oddly enough, I then found some tapes uh, quite recently, only a couple of years ago, I found some tapes and I was listening to these tapes not knowing what they were. And I heard this take of, I talked to the wind going on and on. And then I heard <laughs> um, Robert and Ian McDonald getting rather direct with the uh, producer. And I realized that I had found this recording that Robert had been telling me about for years. And here it was, and I finally had found it and we and could listen to it. And so um, we released it in for the 50th anniversary of In the Court of the Crimson King. I don't know if you know, but recordings that are unreleased fall out of copyright if they've not been released within 50 years. In the UK anyway, yeah. Yes. So when we found those recordings, we realized that we needed to release them all with the 50th year. So for the 50th anniversary of the album, we put out all the sessions, including these rather, <laughs> the endless Morgan Studios recordings of I Talk to the Wind. From the perspective of the consumer, the listener, in the court of the Crimson King was an instant smash. Was that your perception or what were your feelings at the time? All right. Firstly, if I may, I would draw a distinction between a listener or audience or auditor and a consumer or customer. <sighs> Going right back then, the band immediately was hugely successful live, hugely. It became the band of the time and the only, the only band that Ian McDonald considered Blue King Crimson off the stage was free. We worked with them in Red Car in the uh, middle 1969. Free were phenomenal. Kossoff, what a player. Rogers, what a singer. But essentially, when we came on stage, it was almost impossible to follow us. We were an astonishing band. Astonishing band. And the album, when it was released, it was already primed. The word was on the street. The turning point in terms of numbers and public attention was probably the Hyde Park Festival with the Rolling Stones in 1969 there were about 650,000 people there so at the time if you're not going to have success through mainstream media television and radio how will you reach a huge number of people well the answer was live festivals which were often free festivals and Hyde Park in July 1969 uh, was the opportunity for the Rolling Stones to come back into live performance after a break. And the story of EG getting us onto the, the roster is a story in itself. But we were probably the hit of that particular show. And what was known within the industry and club level grassroots suddenly moved out. All the young Americans in Hyde Park went back to America with the word. Young hippies from Europe 
went back to Europe with the word. And then in the end of November 1969 in America, we played the West Palm Beach Festival, three-day festival also with the Stones. It broke King Crimson and Grand Funk Railroad in America. So at that point, the, the grassroots, the word has moved out big time. Okay, so coming from England, what was your personal experience of being in the U.S.? One of liberation. Uh, England was poor. America was wide open. I mean, America in the 50s and 60s, this, this was the American time. It changed into the 70s and onwards. The particular change from uh, America from 69 to 70, 71 was probably the huge success of rock music uh, and records. The, the growth industry in America from 68 to 78 was in the record industry with, I think, $4 billion generated, which now wouldn't say much, but that back then was quite considerable. And when the young English bands began touring America, essentially about 68 and into 69, the music industry, certainly in its live aspects, was not quite professional. For example, King Crimson would land in America in October 1969 and the tour wasn't set up. Why? Well, you had a few club gigs here or there and Frank Barcelona, a key figure in establishing English rock music in America, uh, premier talent, he'd fill in shows along the way. So Hendrix would, would 1968, land in America, play New York one night, Los Angeles the next. I'm exaggerating, but in principle true, David Bowie the same. King Crimson, we had a more measured progression, but it certainly wasn't set up. But then when the money began to come in, you, you'd move from clubs and you'd move from the Fillmore's into sports stadia. And with the shift in commerce, there was a shift in the attitude towards the musician. So speaking in general terms from, say, 69 to 77, when I moved to New York in February 77. In 1969, the the separation between audience and musician, there wasn't one. For me, it was fluid. We were all on the same side. We were all there to be part of this changing the world with music. That was my perspective. Uh, and I don't believe Peter Sinfield said to me, as a criticism, you were never a hippie. So this isn't an old hippie wittering on. This is my experience. But increasingly, and this began to change around 74, the young rock person on stage is now separated from a member of the audience and from the young music writers who began to develop an attitude, which in America was reflected perhaps with Lester Bangs, for example. But in England, in 1976 or 77, my sense of being on stage was 
who the fuck do you think you are? Very English attitude. Whereas walking on the street, newly arrived in New York in 1977, the young character would come up and say, hey, Fripp, what are you doing? There was one of encouragement and support, which I found lacking in England. So increasingly, my orientation in terms of a geographical area which has my focus from 1973 switched to the US from England, stroke England, Europe. Why? Because it was possible and supported by the audience and the industry, and the industry because money was involved, and the audience because there was something real in the music. That's my perception. And King Crimson at this time didn't quite fit in. We weren't mainstream rock. We, we, we played with ZZ Top in Denver, I believe in 1974, and someone pulled the plug on us, pulled the power on us, and 20 minutes into our set, we went blank. Someone didn't like what we were doing. Recent press has suggested that I've been blaming Billy Gibbons for this. Nonsense. Billy Gibbons has my full respect and ZZ Top for a fabulous band. But nevertheless, what became known as progressive rock and prog did have some antipathy. Okay, let's talk business for a minute. The record is licensed to Island and Atlantic. Who owns all that stuff today? I do. How did you end up owning it? 21 years of litigation and dispute, which is ongoing. What is still ongoing? Litigation and dispute over who owns the copyrights and who is therefore entitled to assign them to whomever they dispose. Okay, you've had a 50-plus year career. What do you not own recording-wise, or what is in litigation recordings-wise? Let's speak about this in June of this year. <laughs> okay, let me change the question. The business is much more sophisticated with much more information today. Irrelevant of the ownership of the copyrights and uh, the recordings in the songs, you're busy rehearsing, performing. I can't believe your eye was on business that much. Do you feel that you were ripped off in these rough and tumble years? Well, the answer has to be yes, and I can give you a detailed analysis, virtually month by month week by week and day by day. Why? Because I still have the correspondence. But if we go back to 1969, uh, when we began our relationship with Enthoven Gaiden, Jordan Gaiden has a YouTube interview where he is describing how the young Robert Fripp explained to him the terms upon which the relationship between E.G. and King Crimson would develop, which was... Uh, a shared interest, 70-30 copyright ownership 
uh, between King Crimson and EG Management. And this was all fine and went on until I believe it was February the 26th, 1976, when Entoven and Sam Alder, who went into EG towards about October, November 1970, chartered accountant as a backroom boy to take care of the accountancy and, and uh, the stuff stuff. Uh, but Sam Alder lied. He came and he lied. And he said that the members of King Crimson had to assign the copyright interest to EG uh, so that we could get our money, essentially. This was a lie. And it was a lie which had to be challenged in 1991 when the obfuscation came to a head when EG sold King Crimson copyrights to BMG Music Publishing and Virgin Records. At that point, the beginning of my first major involvement in litigation and dispute for six years and seven months from 91 to 97 began. It's been ongoing to date uh, and has been probably more attracting of my attention than my musical life. And even more of that has fallen on David and Declan Colgan of Panegyric Records, our distributor. But back in the early days, what I did was set up the structure and left it to management I trusted and should not have done. And that's another story as to why I did and should not have. Uh, and when finally it went off course for various reasons, I had to give it my full attention. Okay, litigation is very expensive and it takes time and it's heartache. Is this about the money or is this about equity? What is right? Both. For example, um, two members of the original King Crimson have died not being paid the money they're owed. There were two more members of that first King Crimson, not in great health. I certainly hope they're paid before eventually they do fly away. Me, I'm in great health. I do dead weights of 100 kilograms, which for a man of 77 isn't bad. And I am going to live long enough to make sure these fuckwits in the music industry hand over what we're owed. Let's say, hypothetically, you're victorious across the board. Let's say you end up owning all of these rights. No, I already own them. No. Let's say we're being paid for what David, over to you. <laughs> yes, so the, the, the ownership is not in dispute. So following the dispute that Robert has talked about in the early 90s, certainly in terms of the recordings, it was finally agreed that well, in fact, what was agreed was that the, the, the rights that Virgin Records thought they had obtained, they would keep for 10 years and then they would return them to Robert. So um, in the early 2000s, the rights in the recordings um, were definitively assigned to Robert. Um, the problem has been that 
periodically things get licensed in by major labels in various different ways. And uh, you don't get always get to paid according to those contracts. That is ongoing. Okay, so the lawsuit that we read about, about placing certain songs on streaming services, those are the lawsuits we're referring to. That's litigation. Yes, yes. and that, that one is, that one unfortunately is sub judice. So until May, we're not talking a lot about that one. Yes. Okay, so going back here, Robert, you own this stuff. Would you ever sell it yourself? No. Okay, you have no heirs. And some might say, well, Robert, you're not going to live forever. If they pay you 20x, the money would be here today. What would you say to that? I'd say uh, my inheritor in all the copyrights is David Singleton. That's in my will. Why? Because I trust David to execute his responsibilities towards the catalog as I trust that I have done. And I think our view is that uh, Robert owns those copyrights. He does, in fact, own them personally, but I think Robert owns those copyrights on behalf of all the musicians. That is correct. Yes. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Okay, in the film about King Crimson, one of the players mentions that you wash your hands 20 times a day. What would you say to that? Uh, I was surprised when I heard that. Uh, going back to when I was working with Jamie Muir in 1972 into early 73, I don't believe I had a hand-washing fetish. 
However, what I've always been very careful to do, when I put a guitar on and I play guitar, I must have clean hands. I don't want... Um, I don't want stickiness from picking up cakes, for example, or buttered toast to be transferred to the strings. So in at that particular time, would I wash my hands before playing guitar? Yes. I didn't recognize that I have a hand-washing fetish, which I certainly don't today. But nevertheless, Jamie Muir is a person I respect and I trust his opinion. And if Jamie felt that I was um, an anal fetishist of some kind, then I would certainly give some credence to his opinion, particularly if I'm convinced, as no doubt most people in the world are, is that Fripp is very, very fucked up and a creepy person. Okay, let's say I say, Robert, we're going to the airport. And we go, we get in the car, we've left your house. Are you going to say, fuck, I forgot to lock the front door? Or I left the stove on. Is that part of your personality or would those wouldn't even occur to you? Um, they might occur to me, but I am not obsessive compulsive. That's my view. We'd have to ask my wife. And my wife might say, yes, he is. He's really, he's, he's a very strange person. Well, actually, he does, he does say that. What I would do if I felt, is there a likely chance that I've left my front door unlocked? I would check the keys in my purse. I would then, if I couldn't find them, I would phone my wife and say, I'll have, is the front door unlocked? Or I would call Sadie, our personal secretary, to see if she would check the front door. Or I'd call Mark, Axel Powell, our superb uh, building person, and ask him to check it. What I would not do is throw a moody fit and insist we drive back 30 miles to the front door. Okay. OCD can be very debilitating emotionally. One can be tortured by these thoughts and repetitions. So would your wife say that your need to rehearse every day and to get certain things right are excessive? Or she would say, no, that's not excessive. Uh, well, my wife is an actress, musician, and performer uh, and understands particularly on the stage play, for example, the amount of rehearsing you have to do. So my wife might say, um, you're very strange, but I don't think she would query uh, my need to know I'm walking on stage with musicians who were rehearsed and practiced to play, except, play Olympic standard challenges for a musician. I was going to say she might uh, she might she might ask you to practice fracture where she doesn't have to listen to it. <laughs> oh yes. Now, when King Crimson were reforming in 2013 for 2014, the final incarnation, I would go into the cellar of our home, and I would practice and practice and practice to play this piece called Fracture, which is unplayable. It's technically of such a standard. It's taken. 50 years, really, for other guitarists to approach. It's ugh, horrible. Uh, and my wife had enough of this. And I used to have to go down to the cellar and lock the door of the cellar because it's a very old door and would fly open and turn my guitar amp little 
very small practice then, turn it down so she could no longer hear this motor perpetual going on for two hours as I would come up to speed. So, yeah. Okay, tell us a little bit more specifically what the practice entails. At different parts in our musical life, the emphasis changes. Uh, if I can quote Charlie Parker, and frankly, I think all of us should accept Parker's advice. You learn your instrument, you learn the music, and then you forget all this. Parker said shit, and then you just play. So at different parts of our musical life, to begin with, we're practicing the instrument, how to play the instrument, how on the guitar, the left and the right hand work together. Fingerboard knowledge, musical knowledge, then uh, harmony, rhythm, how the hands come together with fingerboard and musical knowledge, and then learning the repertoire that we're engaging with. In terms of uh, practicing improvisation, throw it away, sit down without thought, play, have fun. And a very good professional musician often needs to be reminded, have fun. Abandon concern for right, wrong, or anything else. Let's remember the bird. Play, just play. So in the, in the incarnation period 2014-21, my primary address for practicing is the calisthenic side of it. Uh, We'll assume that I've learned the rudiments of music. We've assume, assume that I know that I'm learnt the repertoire, which is King Crimson repertoire. The challenge is, as a man in his late 60s and early 70s, is he able to perform at an athletic level at the degree of a man of 25? And the answer is no. So my prime primary practicing area for the final incarnation of King Crimson was how to be calisthenically reliable. If you take the analogy of an athlete, an Olympic quality athlete, these are the challenges. Can you expect an Olympic athlete at age 70 to do what they were doing at 23 or 25? And if the answer is reliably no, what does that athlete at that age have to do in order to meet the challenge? And that was my, my question. And my response was constant calisthenic practicing. Okay, you don't have the athleticism of a younger man, but do you believe the qual end quality of what you're producing is improved with age for some reason because of wisdom and the other stylistic elements? I wouldn't claim wisdom, but I am happy to say I have a lot more experience. And does that support me when I walk on stage? And I would say yes. And why? Because when I walk on stage, I know without any doubt whatsoever. 
music is there and it is available. It never, ever goes away. Do I know that for a fact? Yes. Do I know that for certainty? Yes. How? Because I've paid my dues as a professional musician now for 57 years. What I also know is music doesn't go away. Music is always present, but I am not. So my focus is not on the music, which I trust. My focus is on whether I can be present. That is, can I rely upon myself to walk on stage and whatever horse shit is thrown at me, can I hold myself in the place for at least the duration of the performance? And the answer to that is mostly yes, but there are exceptional situations that defeat me, even today. Okay, what is your opinion of live versus recordings? Recordings are permanent and performances are evanescent. For me, music is in, in live. Uh, it's like gardening. If you're not there when the rose blossoms, it's gone. Yeah, I can take a photo of it and put it on my computer. Think, oh, wasn't that a nice rose? But it's not there. And the scent when you're there in the moment, and it's real. But it won't stay. What might stay is the quality of my experiencing in such a way that I may return to that moment in my experience and access it again. And that only is possible if I am present. I'm present here now inside my body, my experiencing, my feelings, and with the rose. So for me, live performance is a hot date, and a record is a love letter. Now, I love getting letters from my wife, but I would rather take her in a tight embrace. So recordings, even recordings of live performances, are what you leave behind. To what degree are you concerned with legacy? Well, if I said off the top of my head, I don't give a flying fuck. I would then have to say, then why is it that DGM from approximately 1995 to 2015 made the focal point of its existence in securing the archive. Uh, and why then would we release as close definitive editions of all King Crimson's live recorded music as we possibly can? Well, I'd have to say that I keep my wife's love letters. I would still rather have a hot date with her but I still keep the love letters. So we still have love letters from King Crimson to any members of the audience. For those who didn't manage to get on a hot day. And for those that did. Let's say you're performing live and we started with this. I have sat with acts very depressed after a show, feeling they gave a bad performance when the audience has loved it with raging response, what is the goal of the gig? Is it about the communication with the audience and the response in the audience, or is the audience separate, and is it about getting the music performed perfectly? 
I'll, I'll respond to that tangentially, Bob. The musician can only ever say, I felt that was a good show. I felt that was a bad show. It's entirely subjective. It has no relevance. Listening to King Crimson's live recordings, there are performances which sound terrible, but which I recall in the moment were astonishing. For the band members, the audience, this was an event. But the quality of that event did not allow itself to be contained or captured by the recording of it. I have also heard live recordings that are stunning that from a position on stage, I thought this, this was crap. So in the live performance, what are the factors that make the event? Primarily three factors, the music, the musician, and the audience. If the three come together, something can happen. There is a fourth term, which nevertheless has to be included, and that is the music industry. Because if the music industry will not accept what you're doing, as an extreme, it will bury you. As I believe, uh, English punk music was essentially buried in the American music industry in the late 70s. But in the live event itself, you have music musicians in the audience. If the music is alive and vibrant, the audience might miss it and the musicians might miss it. But perhaps it manages to squeeze its way onto tape. And going back, there you have it. I will now have an example of David Singleton completely failing to understand a musical event that was going on. David, which Broadchalk Church? Oh yes, live live soundscapes. Was it two thousand and eight? Lunchtime performance in yes. this church of soundscapes, and when I listened back to the music, there was some remarkable stuff going on. And yet, at the time, David was having a terrible time and thought it sucked. Is this true, David? It is true, and. It's exactly the reverse of what you originally described when I'm always su uh, surprised when going through the tapes, listening, and I say, this is, a, this is the show, this is a wonderful show, and many of the band members will say, oh, but you, you, you must be completely wrong, that was a horrible gig. And exactly, Robert's quite right that there I was in Broadchalk. It's a home gig for me, so this was, this was in my local church, and I was surrounded, therefore, by numerous other pressures. And so I wasn't present. And I, my, if you'd asked me afterwards, I remember thinking, oh, God, that was a horrible event. And you listen back, and the music was fabulous. All right. I have another, another example here, too, which was a churchscapes live in Estonia, which I believe in 2006, <laughs> live performances there, where I would walk on stage with no idea what to play, and even while playing it, having no idea what to play, and then 40 minutes later having, later, having no idea what to play, but holding myself in place, 
forcing myself to remain in place and engaged with no joy whatsoever, but trusting the event, trusting the music, trusting the audience, and continuing to play. And from the churchscapes in Estonia, I'm thinking of Evensong particularly, the performance, the performances had something, of which at the time I was oblivious. But long experience and a developed practice and discipline, the, the solo guitarist improvising away was able to keep himself plugged in and sitting on a guitar stool. Okay, you did during lockdown, you're continuing this YouTube series with your wife. And I was looking at them, and you did a cover of Golden Earrings' Radar Love. I always liked that song. If you'd asked me before I saw it, what I would say, what are the odds that Robert Fripp even knows that record? Okay, now you mention not only English punk and how the, that attitude poop, uh uh, look down on the old players, say, show me something, but you all say it was killed by the U.S. record business. To what degree, and you mentioned Sting earlier, to what degree are you a student of the game? To what degree do you marinate in this? To what degree do you know this? Do you only do it for business purposes? Do you like this music? Tell me about this. All right. What you don't know is on King Crimson's final performance uh, in Central Park in New York. Was it July the 1st, 1974, David? Yeah. King Crimson's support act was Golden Earring. No, I don't know that. Uh, there you are. And the drummer would reliably leap over his kit at the big finale. Now, going back to Frank Barcelona of premier talent uh what frank would do frank barcelona would do is put together astonishing combinations of acts that no one would believe would fit together on the same stage so king crimson um phil maurice 1969 was it october november top of the bill Joe Cocker and the Grease Band, second on the bill. Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, third on the bill. King Crimson, fourth on the bill. Voices of East Harlem. Then moving into 71 and 72, and 73 and 74, other acts on the bill. Black Oak, Arkansas. Now, you can kind of understand just King Crimson and Black Sabbath, joint heading, or King Crimson and Slade, because they're both English bands. Black Oak, Arkansas. I love them. Jim Dandy. I, I, what a great band. Uh, but not in the media you think these two characters would be on the Well, Golden Earring, where did that come from? I've no idea, but they were a great band in their field. Now, Golden Earring's manager was a man called Freddie Hine, who went to take over Polydor Records in New York about 1977, at the time that EG Music left their licensees and moved to Polydor. So once again, you have this remarkable circle of people. You can't break out of your circle. So the manager of Golden Earring that was supporting King Crimson on our last performance in 1974 
with Radar Love and so on, Toy and Robert cover Radar Love years later. Uh, there are a number of King Crimson fans who, who have publicly expressed some dissatisfaction with me uh, performing with Toya. And my comment to Mojo or Q magazine in 2022 was, I don't give a fuck. I'm 76 and this is my life. Now, with my wife, my wife, when lockdown began, was very insistent. Lockdown in our town in England at the time was terrifying. Bob, the fear was palpable. The only time we'd really come out on the street would be on a Thursday evening at six o'clock when people would come out of their houses and stand on the step of their front door and clap and applaud to give acknowledgement, recognition and gratitude to first responders and the health services. So we'd look down the street and there would be our neighbours down the street and we would wave to them and across the square and back. And this was the only contact we had with our neighbours. And on occasion, because we're on the, the main route to ambulances, six o'clock an ambulance would come by while all the people on the street were applauding them. Very moving. But it was a time of palpable fear. And my wife said to me, we're performers. We have a responsibility to people. We have a responsibility to keep their spirits up. So when my wife then gave me a tutu and pointed down the garden to the river's edge at the end of our garden and said, we are going to be dancing to Swan Lake. I took the tights, my wife's tights were a bit small on me. I can, I can put in gently between friends here. The tights were not comfortable, but my discomfiture was covered by the tutu. And we went down and we danced to Swan Lake. And it moved on from there. We began filming, I suppose you would call them covers. Uh, I think maybe some people think we were taking the piss. Not at all. Um, we are very respectful of the artists here who've generated these songs. And here I am playing uh, Smoke on the Water, Mr. Blackmore's famous riff. Um, I am very respectful of this. I mean, let's face it, it's a classic riff. So when we move on to increasing numbers of covers and then in live performances uh, this past year of classics, are you, are you going to go my way? I mean the classic riff, stunning, and the solo, breathtaking. And then you move on to the newer artists. I mean, these are challenges for me to learn a repertoire with which I am not mostly familiar. Why? Because I was developing a King Crimson repertoire, which eventually I became locked into. So here I was learning rock songs in the tuning I haven't used for 35 years, doing my best to honour the original performers and the original intentions that gave life to the music. And much to our surprise, it took off. 
it was one of the two so-called internet sensations in the United Kingdom from lockdown. The other one was Sophie um, Sophie Ellis Baxter. Yeah, um, Kitchen Disco. Um, she was the other one that really kicked in. So we eventually began to find something of an, of an approach, uh, which we we're maintaining. We do one we do one new song a month at the moment, uh, plus access to our archive. I can't even remember all the songs we've covered, and we do our upbeat moments. Uh, and the brief and the aim remains the same. We have a responsibility in challenging times to do what we can to support the spirits of our audience. Good people out there. And some of the personal messages, some public, some personal, we've received from people, they're heartbreaking. The conditions of people locked up in small studio apartments in high-rises while their mother is dying in hospital and they can't see them and then they can't even get to the funeral while our prime minister in Downing Street is having parties. I mean, this is profoundly offensive, but we can't, we can only address what we can address. So we continue to do so. Okay. Just diving a little deeper. You're a player and a composer. Are you also a fan? Like if I started, I'll give you an example. There was this BN Charlie, Terry Thomas, who became a record producer. Is this all the kind of stuff you know, or these are just certain records that you know? Well, when I was on the road, it was flat out on the road. And the music we would get to hear would essentially be the other artists we're working with. And whereas when I first moved to London, you would have gatekeepers who would say, you need to listen to this. And we still get this. Uh, my wife says, you should listen to this. Because my wife is keeps her, her fingers very much on the pulse of things. So my wife would say, listen to this and see if you think we can do a good thing with this. But I think probably our determining musical direction is really when we're younger. And for me, although I have been profoundly touched by recorded music, uh, I still tend to be more, more attached to the music I've seen live. Some exceptions, obviously, Beatles Day in the Life, Hendrix. I didn't get to see Hendrix live, although he did get to see King Crimson live, may I say. Uh, so, yes, I am connected to music through records, but for me, once again, really, it's live. I have, for example, in our Abbey over here, which has been standing since about 11.40, I have been there listening to appalling concerts of semi-pro symphony orchestras, watching the beat move outwards from the conductor to the edge of the large symphony orchestra 
the tuning wavering as it went. But nevertheless, it has a power in the moment if we're able to be open to it. So, yeah, not many leading rock bands come through our town. So I have to rely increasingly on YouTube and Spotify, but it's secondhand. So my wife makes her suggestions and I follow them is the quick answer. Okay, you reference the prime minister. Needless oh, to say. Oh, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm going to need a piss before we get onto that one. All right, okay, I'll be take right it, back. Take oh, another, oh, take another oh, piss. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, oh. David, you certainly know Robert extremely well. Uh, is his talking and demeanor today typical of him, or is it atypical? Uh, no, that's the man I know. Oddly enough, when I do interviews, the most common question is, you know, I've been working with Robert since 1989, I think. And, you know, how have you spent that long working with this, you know, awful whatever perception they have of this man? And I always give the same answer, which is that I've never met that man. You know, I've never met the, the horrible man that people suggest. Um, so um, I think because we have a very common aim, Robert and I, I think we, we certainly in business together, we have a common aim. The music comes first, the art comes first. Um, so I've never really met the irascible person that everybody talks about. Do you believe it's a misperception or you're no, 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 I, no, I, I, no, I've, I've met enough people to know that it's not a misperception. And as Robert himself said, I think that when he said, I think if someone comes to him with a flea in his ear, in their ear, he'll send them back with two. I think that was where, <laughs> that was where this started, you know, several hours ago. So, um, uh, so I, th I think if people have an attitude, you know, um, he will respond in kind. Um, so no, I'm, sh I'm sure it's very, very real, but, um, uh, but I, I, I've enjoyed working with him. We've been, as I said, we've been at it since 1989 in various different ways, and um, we're still at it. <laughs> and how did you meet him? Uh, I was working at a studio. I was producing a record in a studio in the town that he referred to at the beginning, a town Cranbourne in Dorset, that he'd used for um, working on King Crimson tracks. And Robert sacked his sound engineer halfway through the tour and phoned up the studio owner to say, do you know someone who could step in at short notice who might be able to come out? And the studio owner came through and said to me, David, what are you doing in two weeks' time? And I said, well, I'm free. And he said, what well, do you fancy going out to America? So <laughs> I flew out to Seattle to uh, join Robert halfway through that tour. And I think I've worked on every single King Crimson release since then. So we literally, we got on very well and... Um, have carried on ever since. So was it an instant bonding or did you have to earn his trust? No, it wasn't, it wasn't an instant bonding. I think I was, I was evidently instantly competent. So that side, I think I, I, I was, uh, because, uh, but you know, it works in stages. So the first, at the first stage, I was just a live sound engineer. Uh, he was actually recording Sunday all over the world with Toya at the time. So immediately after that, he asked me if I'd come and record Toya's vocals on that record, which I did. 
we assembled the record. And I can remember at the time they were discussing running orders, saying, oh, well, haven't you thought of this running order? It might work. And which was probably the beginning of when Robert, someone begins to think, well, your tastes, you know, trust your taste as opposed to simply your competence. Um, and so, no, it's a, it's a gradual process that uh, went on over time, over years. What have I missed, David? It, um, he, he, was, he was asking how we came to work together. Oh, I, yes. I, I was telling him about um, 1989, flying out to do a guitar craft court tour, and then I think I've worked on every recording that followed that. Immediately after that, I recorded Toya's vocals on Sunday all over the world. Uh, and then we did Frame by Frame. And um, I, in fact, I can tell you Robert's sense of humor doing Frame by Frame. Uh, I can recall th this was the very first. It was a four CD collection of King Crimson. And Virgin Records phoned up Robert and said that they wanted a radio edit of 21st Century Schizoid Man. And I heard Robert on the phone saying, well, there isn't a three-minute version of that track. And I said, Robert, of course there is. <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, well, I can remember what I thought when I very first he heard that track, which was, I like the first verse, I like the second verse, not sure what's happening in the middle, and I quite like the third verse. <laughs> and a man with a sense of humor, Robert allowed me to make that edit, and it got released. <laughs> um, and I then learned that from Robert's perspective, I was hearing, in a sense, hearing the track completely upside down. Because I think Robert would regard in many of these tracks as, you know, that the, the beginning is a jumping off point for the middle. In a sense, in, in a sense, that's the core of the track, whereas I was hearing it completely the other way around. So. I trust David's sense of things above my own. Okay, you were going to give us a reading on the UK today. Uh, I'm not sure that was what I was intending to do, Bob. Um, what I would say is at the moment there would seem to be a lack of confidence in the power possessors and those who stand above us and nominally serve the interests of the populace. Uh, there seems to be... Um, a lack of accountability on behalf of those who have power in our lives. There's a huge structural breakdown. And part of that is utterly terrifying. Uh, and part of it is remarkably heartening. Because if we believe that, going back 50, 60 years, that our interest is in... Uh, making a new world, then the old world has to give way for that to be possible. So what we're seeing as a structural breakdown might actually be a necessary precondition for a new world appearing. Nevertheless, along the way, let's face it, it's pretty bumpy. Uh, DGM has its statement of the ethical business, the four pillars of the ethical business, honesty, responsibility, equity, goodwill. These are four very simple criteria for making a value judgment. Uh, in terms of, for example, our dealings with a record company, are they honest? Are they responsible? Do they view us uh, equitably? 
is the goodwill involved? Then the answer to all four is no. But at least it gives us criteria that we can base a, a course of action upon. I think 2008 and the rescue of the world financial system exacerbated the profound inequality of which we're all pretty much aware nowadays. Was it necessary? Well, I think it was at least inevitable. So what do we do? In 1974, after five or six years on the road as a professional working musician, I was in despair, sitting there in Putney, London, in despair at the madness of the world. The world is mad. Nowadays, I sit here in my study in Middle England and I think, the world is mad. And I suppose if I laid myself, I could become despairing. Uh, in strange and uncertain times, sometimes a reasonable person might despair. But hope is unreasonable and love is greater even than this. So where can I find hope? Well, for me, one primary element, if you like, proof of hope, is that I know that music never goes away despite the best efforts of the music industry. Music survives the music industry. Well, that's hope. So what I do is I strap on and I rock out. I walk on stage with my wonderful little wife and play rock classics with classic riffs that get people on their feet cheering and shouting and punching the air. The music is not constrained by players in the music industry. For me, that's hope. Love, well, now and again, perhaps, but hope is more readily available. And tell us a little bit about Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett was a brilliant and flawed man. Uh, intellectual powerhouse. For example, as a mental discipline, he would he would play a game of three-dimensional chess through visualization. That's, yeah. He was a polymath, a multilinguist. I think as a younger man, probably very arrogant, which tends to come with, uh, with extraordinary intellectual powers. He was... Uh, 1921, he was British intelligence in Turkey and I believe signed the visa that allowed Kemal Ataturk to move into Turkey, for which he he's still is respected in Turkey to this day, I understand. Uh, Mr. Bennett worked hard and upset lots of people, but after 1969, something changed for him. In, in my view, he came to a realization that after that, everything was different. And he was a voice for young people that were looking for a figure with experience and authority. And when I came across him, this was very clear. Uh, 
young people at the time would maybe go to the east or go on pilgrimages. put on blue robes or various forms of other cultures. But for me, my friend, Mr. Bennett, this was an Englishman who wore English clothes that I understood, spoke the language that I understood, and he was only 100 miles down the road. So this was it for me. Uh, and I met him a month before he died which is a very powerful experience for me, which, funnily enough, increases in power the older I get. As I recognize that connections can be made uh, in a moment that doesn't have to be an extended moment in clock time, but nevertheless, the contact and connection can be made that endures and persists through time. It's like hearing a particular piece of music. It stays with you forever. Why? Because it's spoken to you. It's made a connection with you. Uh, and for those who feel that these experiences maybe can, it's a cosmic witterer wittering on, I suggest that pretty well most of us at least have these experiences, which are very direct for us, and we don't necessarily have to explain them. We accept that they're real. So this was Mr. Bennett, who had the rare capacity to express complex notions in straightforward English. Why? Because what he was talking about was in his experience. He, in 1969, in my view, he went somewhere, and then he came back. and. To quote Hassan Shusud, very important figure in, in Turkish Sufism, Mr. Bennett knows more about the mechanisms of the spirit, the mechanics of the spiritual life than any person in the West since Meister, Meister Eckhart. Now, what do I know about that? I can't possibly comment on that. What I can say is Mr. Bennett spoke with authority, which spoke to me in a language which persuaded me that I actually knew what Mr. Bennett was talking about. How could I? But nevertheless, he persuaded me that I could in such a way that I've persisted ever since. And Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett are part of my everyday life, every day. Can you give us just a little more depth for those who are unfamiliar with the man? What one might say his lessons are, and what you took from his words. Well, Mr. Bennett said, I teach, I teach you how to cook, not what to cook. So what Mr. Bennett would do is teach you how to walk into a kitchen, pick up the implements, pick up the recipe, and make the meal. The recipe you chose was up to you. So in other words, it's very practical. What are the mechanics of the musical life? I can tell you that. What are the mechanics of the spiritual life? Mr. Bennett could tell you that too. What I can say now at age 77, they're exactly the same. I'm not sure that helps you at all, Bob, does it? <laughs> no, I can, I can take that and grow from that, but let me put it a different way. You say he's part of your life every day. 
and he was playing on your computer in the background. What is your everyday interaction or lesson like? Well, every day I'm cooking. So my lessons in how to cook are ongoing every day. My father and my mother, my biological father and mother, are with me every day as well. My spiritual father and my spiritual mother are with me every day as well. Okay, going from uh, the sublime to the ridiculous, we're here, it's just us, you're wearing a tie. When did this sartorial change happen and what is behind it? It began around 2012. Now, in terms of why, this is an interesting one. I trust my feet when they go walking. When my feet go walking, I follow where they go. And when my feet have taken me to a place at which I've arrived, I recognize, ah, I need to be here. My feet brought me here. So trusting my feet where they go walking, that is my sense of direction, which is internal, I don't have to rationalize my, to myself where I'm going, but once I'm there, I might do that. I might look back and say, why has my external appearance changed? And the answer might be something on the inside has changed. So at that point, I monitor my experience to see how my experience of how I experience my experience and live my life might have changed. In other words, I seek to better understand where I am now. So your exterior is evidence of your interior. Yes, I think that's true. What would you say, Bob? Oh, we, you know, this goes to my next question. We've been around a long time. You know, I remember when long hair was a significant signifier after the Beatles came out. I remember the turn of the decade of the 70s when it became an affectation. You could not judge somebody based on their long hair, which is when I cut my hair off. We live in an era, you know, you grew up, talk about the 60s and the 70s where it was internal, whereas now there's so much external with the trappings. Let me show you how much money I have, etc. We're all looking for points of uniqueness in a standardized world. We all have the same phone. We have the same watch. We have this. So on some level, it does send a message. In your particular case, you are dressing in a way atypical of people from your background generation walk of life are. So therefore it stands out to the point that I comment on it. And I'm sure that you know that this will have an effect on people who look at you, whatever they might say, they might say, this is a serious guy. This guy is it's, it's an act. Maybe he's old. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of all that. All right. Well, a couple of comments at first, the, uh, Going back to 2012, I noticed that people on the street were dressing in a, shall we say, relaxed fashion. People of my age, old geezers, even older than me, this town has the, the highest average age of any town in England. And there are old people I see shopping on, the, older than me, Bob, 
shopping on the street today and they've put on the suit to go out shopping. Now, I understand this from my youth. What you wore in your house was not what you wore to go out in public. You would change to go out in public. And still in people much older than me, and there are a few of them in town, go out shopping in a suit and tie. And I can tell because the, sh- the suit is too big because the man of 80-odd has shrunk within the suit, which may or may not have fitted him 60 years ago when he first had it. It was his marriage suit, his funeral suit, uh, and his Sunday suit. So part of it was seeing a new generation of people on our street who were dressing in a relaxed fashion. And for me, it was a little too relaxed in some cases. I'm not going to use the word scruffy. Shall we say it was exceptionally relaxed? I wished to go another way. Now, also in 2012, looking back, I would say that I had myself been scruffy for a number of years. Why? Because I lived my life on the road. Going away for six or eight weeks, even three weeks, what do you do? My answer was I wear black. Why? Because everything's black. If it gets dirty, you don't see it so much. You have the same black jeans, black socks, black knickers, black t-shirts, black, all the rest of it is all black. It's very, very straightforward and requires no thought whatsoever. And having come off the road in 2010 with the intention never, ever to work live again, I was making a sea change. I changed how I dressed. Okay. You're not recognized everywhere. So I'm sure there are places you go that are public places where you're not recognized. Maybe an airplane, maybe a restaurant. Do you find that people treat you differently when you're dressed with a tie, etc.? All right. Um, one or two things on this. Since Toyer and Robert have become an internet sensation in England, it used to be that wherever I go anywhere with my wife, my wife was recognized and I was overlooked. However, with our internet sensation, uh, we go over the road to our wonderful coffee shop in town and we're sitting in the window and people come in and speak to us that we've never seen before. So not so much. There is also a situation. I was in Venice with my wife. I'm trying to think when this was, about 2006. And we were there in April, which is the beginning of tourist season. So to get away from the burgeoning crowds, we walked to the very, very furthest, quietest place over there in Venice. And we were completely alone on a street in Venice until a solitary Italian gentleman appeared. And he said, Freep, 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 you are Freep. And my wife was astonished. My wife was astonished. The only person in this deserted part of Venice knows Fripp. So anyway, um, moving on to am I universally recognized? No, of course not. However, in King Crimson context, mostly so. Uh, And in context where I am known or not, does how I dress have an effect. 
The answer is yes, without any doubt whatsoever. Why? Because here is a character who has very intentionally chosen his suit, what he's wearing, his tie. If he, they check out the socks, they will see the socks of those not conventionally chosen. And the tie is mostly not conventionally chosen either. Here at the moment, I'm dressed, you know, I'm dressed down comfortably. But I still have my rather nice silk tie, which I acquired from the charity shop down the street for £10. So, yes, if you walk into the first class British Airways lounge at Heathrow, why? Because Daryl Hall sent me a first class ticket to fly to live at Daryl's house. Most of the people in the first class lounge and in first class are dressed in a very relaxed fashion. Not to say scruffy. Why? Because they're so rich they don't give a hoot. So first class people are scruffy. People in business class tend to be smart, more smartly dressed. Why? Because a first class concierge pal of mine said, People in first class know who they are. People in cattle class know who they are. But people in business class are aspirational. They want to move to the front. So people in business class tend to be more smartly dressed. Me, wherever I sit nowadays, it will be more smartly dressed. Why? Primarily to put a demand upon myself. And secondly, if there's a likelihood for you to be upgraded, if you look impeccably smart, your chances have just gone up. Okay, at your age, having seen so much, we live in a music business that's completely different in that the era of the, in the court of the Crimson King doesn't happen for anybody anymore. You cannot have that level of ubiquity no matter who you are, how do you soldier forward and how do you keep your optimism? Two questions, Bob. Would you choose one of them first, please? How do you soldier forward? Uh, it's part of my discipline to keep going. So I decide, keep going. So the question is then, am I able to rely upon myself? So what I do in the morning when I get up, say, hello, God, and send out my good thoughts to immediate family and friends and distant family and friends. From there, I move to my physical regime of physical exercises. And then I get in the cold shower. Why? Because my body doesn't want to get into the cold shower any more than it wants to do its exercises. But this is the animal that carries me round life, and it will not tell me what I do. I tell my body what to do. And then I move from this to my morning sitting, and then from that I enter my day, having told myself that I will, you will keep going. And in terms of optimism, why am I optimistic? Because I've decided to be optimistic. I'm a reasonable person, and if a good reason a reasonable person would despair. So reason isn't sufficient. I have to trump reason. And I trump it, first of all, with hope, 
which we've just discussed. I trump this with hope, and with discipline, I am enabled to hold myself on course. Let me go just a little bit, thread the needle, which may not be what you're literally doing right now, but you're familiar with. You have these very dedicated fans. You could pick one of the albums from your catalog, you know, Islands, Lizard, Red, and you could say, I am going to play this album for a year live because the audience will love this. Okay. Would that be emotional and intellectual death for you? Do you have to keep pushing the envelope to make it interesting to you? Uh, I continue to challenge myself. An example of that, well, going on the road with David for two weeks, for example, or having a guitar course for between 100 and 120 people in Lorenzo near Mendoza in Argentina this late April, and then doing uh, festival performances and live shows with Toy later in the year. These are all challenges for me. Uh, is it, are they intellectual challenges? Yep, certainly going on the road with David it is. Uh, are they personal challenges? Yes, you have a hundred people come along and they look to me to give them advice. Yeah, is that a challenge? Certainly. Is that an intellectual, intellectual challenge? Not as much as it is a challenge to my feelings. How to engage on a feeling level with these people. Am I likely to go on the road and play a particular King Crimson album for one year to keep people happy? I think that's unlikely. I think um, if I were to choose a specific repertoire to play live for a period of time, I would have to choose that repertoire I really, really, really would like to play this. And it is within the current athletic and calisthenic standards, which I can ask myself to honor. But do I believe that I will invite a number of other players to set off on the road to do that with me? I think that's unlikely. Okay, so if we brought your wife in right now, would your demeanor and style of speech be the same or would it be more colloquial and less measured? The latter. And we'll leave it at that, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I can't thank you guys enough. This has been very stimulating and I'm sure it will be that way for my audience. Thanks so much for doing this. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. 
The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that. And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.